Welcome to the Birmingham Lit Fest Presents podcast series. I'm Kit Duval, writer and guest curator of this year's podcast. Each Thursday, we will feature wonderful discussions about writing, poetry, big ideas and social issues. This week's episode brings together in conversation two of the UK's most established broadcasters and journalists, Stuart McConey and Pete Pafides, to discuss their latest books, The Nanny State Made Me and Broken Greek. In conversation with writer and poet Joe Bell, they discuss the personal and cultural importance of music, their deep connection to the Midlands, redefining our understanding of the nanny state, and what it is to have a life so different to that of your parents. This episode of the Birmingham Lit Fest Presents podcast is brought to you in partnership with Danes Accounting. Visit their website for more information about their services at danes.com. Hello and welcome to Birmingham Literature Festival. You'll be used to recordings by now from all kinds of different places. So if you hear the slight creaking of timbers, that's because my part of this podcast is being recorded on a boat. I'm Jo Bell. I'm a poet who has often been a guest of this festival. And today I'm speaking to two men whose recent books have a lot in common. Pete Perfido's Broken Greek and Stuart McConey's The Nanny State Made Me are both funny, they're thoughtful, they're what you might call lyric histories telling the story of a personal life and looking at a larger world through the rearview mirror. Stuart McConey's book looks at the impact of the welfare state through its framing of his own life. And Pete Perfides shows us what it was like to grow up in Birmingham during the 70s and 80s as a second generation Greek through the records that saw him through childhood and adolescence. So hello both. Where are you today? Stuart, where are you? Hi, Joe. I'm in a almost completely deserted BBC Media City studio. I've been uh, incredibly, we were designated, my show and uh, Lauren Laverne's show on Six Music were designated key workers at the beginning of this, at the beginning of this uh, crisis. And so I've been working, I've been coming here every weekend. And although there's a, there's been a slight increase in busyness, pretty much still, it's, it's, it's slightly weird. So I'm in a deserted studio in Salford at the moment. Wow. Well, thanks. Where are you, Pete? I'm slightly less romantically. I'm in the shed at the, at the bottom of the garden. I've sort of commandeered, which is my daughter's <laughs> office usually, but I've um, I've ousted her. And so me and the dog <laughs> are just sitting here. But uh, I do like it. Stuart's situation sounds quite romantic. I quite like being in in radio studios when they're mostly empty. They have, there's a certain kind of romance about it, which I dare say has probably wore off quite a long time ago. No, it is. I do. You're you're absolutely right. There is a strange kind of feel. It's like radio studios in the middle of the night. People who do those kind of shows where you go, hi, it's coming up to 20 to 4. You know, that kind of thing. It is quite romantic. Yeah, but... And I can see Winter Hill from my window, so it's all quite nice. Fantastic. Ian McMillan told me once that he had been at Radio 4 when the shipping forecast was on and how he imagined that the whole station was just switched off like a light switch at the end. And he said, and it was just like that. It was just like that. They finished the shipping forecast and, and then they turned it off and Radio 4 went to bed. My, my favourite my favorite entry in the BBC duty log, which used to be, it's probably all online now, it used to be when people called up with complaints and stuff, they used to put it in what was called the duty log. My favourite complaint was shipping forecast too fast. <laughs> it's important. I mean, you are, you're all doing important work for the nation and no one perhaps is more important than the exactly. shipping forecast. Especially to those of us who have no real idea what it means. Yeah. So we're here today to, to celebrate your two books, which 
I've reread and enjoyed and uh, I've listened to Pete's as well as the book of the week on Radio 4. Uh, and it strikes me how much they've got in common and of course how separate they are. So what I'd like to do is to hear an extract first from Stuart's book and a couple of questions for Stuart and then we'll repeat that process with Pete and then we'll bring you both into a conversation together. So I'm going to introduce Stuart first for those of you who don't know him which can't be many of you. Stuart McConey is a music journalist, a broadcaster, an author of broad-ranging social histories, which often start from pop culture, but they go much deeper, they go much wider. And in the words of the Daily Mail, Stuart McConey, do you want to hear this, Stuart, what the Daily yes, Mail please. says about you? What did they say? Uh, they said you are a lefty, but he's not one of those hectoring ideologues who stands astride social media bellowing at people. Uh, so, <laughs> Stuart, could you, could you please bellow? Or otherwise, a few words from your book, The Nanny State Made Me. OK, this is from the very short, this is the opening page or two, it's from the very short prologue, a sort of scene setting. London's skyline bristles with towers, old and new, bloody and sleek, monuments to kings and to commerce, from the giants of the city's swampy money jungle to the high-rise canyons of Camden, visitor and native steers and orients by them lifting your eyes from your book or your phone or your feet as the train exhales into Houston as the bus crests Muswell Hill as you jostle through the West End. Whenever I pace the narrow lanes of Bloomsbury and Fitzrovia I look up for my favourite a grade two listed building more human and generous than the monstrosities of Canary Wharf it's had many names and many lovers. It looms over works by Ian McEwan, The Goodies, Alan Moore, Harry Potter and Doctor Who. It is part of our shared national iconography. It is a symbol of something, but what? I think I know. Glamour, vision, adventure, the future that was coming. Early in the 21st century, just as we were realising that that future wasn't coming for most of us down below, I had lunch at the top of that tower, in the restaurant that used to revolve, the restaurant of failed dreams, with a man who helped to build it. I was filming an interview with Tony Benn, the grand old firebrand of the labour movement about the tower's history. In 1966, along with the holiday camp magnate Billy Butlin, he opened what was then called the GPO or General Post Office Tower. He was Postmaster General and the tower was designed by the architects of the Ministry of Public Buildings. Neither of those positions or organisations exist now. With the coming of Margaret Thatcher's new, changed Britain, the tower, as part of the privatisation of the post office, the first of many, it became first the telecom and then the BT Tower. And as we sat in the restaurant Erie, closed to the public for decades on the vague and spurious grounds of it being a terrorist target, I could sense the mounting anxiety of the slick, besuited PR man. Eventually, he came over to our table. Hey, I can't help noticing, guys, Stuart, Tony, that you're referring to the building as the GPO Tower, he laughed indulgently. Now, it's not been that for a long, long time, guys. Can I just remind you, it's the BT Tower, as in British Telecom, who own it. Ben fixed him with a stare that combined pity and scorn. Excuse me, I commissioned this building. I built it using British labour and skills with the money 
of the British people who paid for it with their taxes. It belongs to them and it always will. Margaret Thatcher took it from them and gave it to you when it was not hers to give. This is not your building, it is theirs. And he pointed to the streets below and the rushing crowds. It was stolen from them. The PR guy, crushed, moved silently back into the shadows. Ben turned to me, rolled his eyes and winked. At that point, the seed of this book was planted. This is my story, your story, and how it was stolen from us. Brilliant, thank you. Tony Tony Ben nailing his cards to the table as usual there. Yeah. Uh, and, and you laying out yours as well. Um, partly, one of the things that strikes me through reading this book is how important individuals are in all of our lives, but in shaping the world that we live in. And I briefly met Tony Ben because he came to my school and spoke right. to us with that same truth to power, uncompromising, starry-eyed, listen here, <laughs> Uh, attitude that, that framed us all and you in in framing the book in that way you you set yourself up as a provocateur deliberately what is the nanny state and who calls it that well it's interesting i mean when we first had the discussions when i had the discussions with my publisher penguin random house ebury about this and i said i want to call it the man the nanny state they made me they came back to me and said we're not sure it's kind of negative isn't it the nanny state that's and okay. i said well, that, well that's kind of the point i'm trying to reclaim it you know mm. and they said it feels a little bit downbeat and i said well why i'm no longer talking to white people about race is quite negative you know but that's yeah. it <laughs> that's and i think they and eventually they came around and they saw that what i was trying to do was take this term which is a bizarre term i did a program with Michael Rosen about language in which I talked to try to unpick, as it were, that phrase nanny state. It is used as a shorthand by people who wouldn't know what a nanny is. It's used by, you know, builders and shop workers who've never had any experience of a nanny, a nana maybe. I mean, but they've 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 taken it on board as this um as this terrible pejorative description of um, and what my point of view, my point in the book is, well, I suppose it firstly it comes to the point of view, what are governments for if not to look after their people? I mean, that's my, that's my starting point. We, we've alone almost in the world, well, us and the Americans, arguably at the moment, the two most potty countries on earth. Us and the Americans alone in the civilised world seem to say, oh no, governments, we don't want them to do anything. Well, that's fine. That's fine if we don't want the government to do anything. I'll stop paying taxes then. But, but as long as we do pay taxes and we have a civic shared responsibility, that's the point of a government, to do stuff for, for people. And it seems to me we, we now think that's anathema in this country. And um, and I do, and as I say, it's a, it's a glib joke, but it's, it's one with a kernel of truth. As I say early on in the book, the people who moan about the nanny state are the people who had nannies. It's people yes. like Jacob Rees-Mogg, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I find it, um, I find it extraordinary. And so, I, I mean, as you can tell, I'm, I'm kind of angry about all this. But I hope it's not an angry book. I hope it's more of a, I hope it's funny and fist bump on the table, as it were. It is. It is all of that. And actually, it has it has a quality which uh, I can only remember Richard Dawkins uh, bringing about in me before, which is that it made me furiously angry as I read it because I agreed with every word of it. Right. <laughs> uh, it, it, you know, it made me laugh out loud. It is very funny. There are so many anecdotes and, and personal starting points. And of course, you frame it in terms of your own life. But it is also a book, and the title brings me back to that. It is also a book in which the title is that clear statement it sits alongside why i'm no longer talking to white people about mm -hmm. race or kit deval's common people mm -hmm. um or akala's natives uh, and i think pete's book does this 
as well in a very different way that you're you're putting your cards on the table and saying right this is what this book is about and sometimes as with natives or common people the phrasing of the title is is reclaiming that which we have yeah. been called it is it is a polemic but it's a it's a polemic and a, and a polemic and a, it's got interviews it's got travel in it but it's it's a it has an element of memoir in which in not not as strongly as, as pete's does but i think it challenged initially when i learned that pete and i's books were coming out uh, around the same time i mean i was keen on us doing some events together which i'm so glad we're doing this together because i did think that although they're coming from different angles they have quite a lot of there's quite a lot of shared there's a commonality about them, I think. So um... no, I just totally agree. You know, there are so many sort of things that I, I, you know, Stuart's. What I liked about Stuart's book is obviously uh, there is a lot of anger in it, but it's uh, actually it's a very celebratory book as well, and it wears it lightly in a way that you know I loved the almost incidental way that there are certain kind of parts of Birmingham that I found very beautiful as I was growing up uh, in a completely you know in a way that you don't analyse because you're young. And uh, and I really loved the way the way Stuart kind of celebrated those uh, same places and you know in the the central library and you know just just the just the his use of the word planter where the bit where he's sitting on a planter that alone just yeah. evoked such a rush of warm feelings from me because planters to me were these beautiful things that I could kind of like line up my toy cars on and uh, you know the. You know the, the 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 new town, the the kind of optimism optimism of new towns. Yeah, I I, yes. that, that, I loved all of that. Sorry, carry on. This it is my bit. <laughs> no, it is. It's a re. It's a joyful reclaiming of the public and the municipal, which are often sneered at and considered uh, second rate in some way. And your chapters, Stuart, have titles like "I am born," "I go to school." I have fun and I travel. So it sounds almost like a Ladybird children's book. I, Stuart yeah. McConey has fun. It was kind of, yes, it was deliberate. It was deliberately meant to echo those. And you know, those kind of picaresques like Tom Jones, where they say like, uh, yes. in which our hero goes to school for the first time. <laughs> and it was meant to be, well, you and Peter, absolutely right. One of the real points of it was it was a love letter to those things that are routinely sneered at when people go, oh, Newtowns, they're such soulless monstrosities. Oh, council estates, they're such soulless monstrosities. And I go, um, I grew up on one. It was great. I loved it, yeah. you know, and, and I, I just wanted to reclaim for the vast majority of us. That's the thing. It's for the many, not the few. The people who say these things are a tiny minority of, of people who really say, oh, Newtown's a ghastly. And, you know, it's, it's yeah. no, I'm, I'm reminded of that. It's uh, that whole idea of public libraries, for instance, as a place which are scorned, but which uh, have been taken for granted by many of us until they yeah, disappeared. Until they uh, sorry, Pete, what were you about to say? What were you punching the air at, Pete? I was, just pu I was punching the air as you got to Cumbernauld. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> where, where for people Why is who don't that? Know, where Gregory's Girl was filmed. And, yes. you know, God, I so wanted to just jump into the television screen. Oh, and, my God. And, and be in, sort of experience a Cumbernauld sunset as as this kind of plaintive saxophone music kind of piped up <laughs> and you'd see Gregory kind of lying on the ground dancing with Claire Grogan. That's exactly right. I mean, I Bill, Bill Forsyth's film, that, that film, what I loved about Gregory's God, He's, he doesn't at any point in that say, look at how these people live in their extraordinary and benighted way. It's just presented mm. as normal life. And, and, and as it was for millions of us, you know. Yeah. And likewise, uh, both of your books are very non-metropolitan. You know, they are unapologetically, of course, celebrating that which is not London, that which is perfectly normal. It's not like, of course, Wigan was fascinating at the time, but now I've outgrown it. 
uh, there is a deep affection for the places from which you began and in some ways have come right back to. Uh, and one of the things I want to ask you as you as you look at those, that interface between the personal and the and the political, the larger environment, is your personal anecdote about Birkenhead and its parks, public parks you were talking mm. about as places of recreation. And along the way, you tell us about the relationship between Birkenhead and Central Park. Tell us about that. Well, yeah, no, the, 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 this, this, this connection was pointed out to me uh, unexpectedly, but brilliantly, by uh, Nigel, the lead singer and chief songwriter of Half Man, Half Biscuit, who, mm. uh, I, I, who I've seen described as Britain's greatest living satirist. And I think that might be true. Um, yeah. And he, he's a history buff. He comes from Birkenhead. He's very proud of coming from Birkenhead. He's a history buff. And he told me this, and it is indeed. I mean, it's an extraordinary story. The man who designed Central Park was on a walking tour of the North West, apparently, and popped into a tobacconist's. And the, and he, and the tobacconist said, what brings you around here? And he said, oh, I'm, having, I'm on holiday. I actually design public parks for a living, and I'm going to design one in New York. And the tobacconist said, oh, you want to have a look at ours, mate? It's great. And he, and he had a look and said, this is wonderful. I'm going to base it on this. And I, I, I don't know Central Park that well in, in New York. But those people who do say, yeah, it's 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 modelled on it, and it's interesting. The fortunes of Birkenhead Park, like a lot of the things in this book and my book, like libraries and and schools, the fortunes of it are sort of are sort of written in miniature, launched in the heyday of great civic pride, and then you know, then recessions come and wars come and go, and then Thatcher comes and the public realm is kind of put on hold and and as I, and, and, and I, I don't know whether we will emerge from all this crisis with any new public and civic energies i hope we do i'm not holding my breath mm. but yeah it, it, the, the, those things like municipal golf courses municipal libraries municipal swimming baths the the neglect the the rise and fall kind of reflects our rise and fall i think as a, as a properly grown-up country and i wonder if some of that uh, disdain for the nanny state comes from from that um opposition perceived opposition between aspiration and community you know that that mm. when you talk about the the rising importance of the individual as a yeah. a rather selfish thing a sort of me 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 generation rather than an us 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 generation perhaps the last chapter uh, which incredibly prophetically i know talks about eam in derbyshire where they isolated themselves from the plague uh, and i excuse me I... speaking as a derbyshire native that's eam i Is just have eam? to say that on behalf i, I have to say that on behalf of the peak district right. population okay i didn't know that eam <laughs> In Derbyshire, thank you. Um, is the, the you know I wonder I wondered aloud in the end of the book would we do this now? Well, we got the chance to find out, didn't we? About three weeks after the book came out about isolation yeah. and things like. That. But what I, I I just I wonder aloud at the end of the book, and I, and I do say whilst I totally understand that there has been a move towards individual empowerment and what loosely gets called identity politics in the last few years. Whilst I totally get that to to a degree, I also think that it will only take you so far. And there are times when the good of the whole of us is more important than unfettered individual expression. And I do believe that. Brilliant. And the subtitle of your book is A Story of Britain and How to Save It. So no pressure there. I'm not sure that I, I came up with that subtitle. I think someone else did, but I thought, well, it's provocative. I'll stick with it. Well, exactly. So who? What, I, what I'm interested in is who do you hope will read this book? Is it? I mean, I cannot pretend to be an impartial observer here because I pretty much agree with everything you said. But who do you hope will read it? Will it be to confirm the 
experience of people like ourselves? Will it be for younger people or for people from a different perspective altogether? And what do you hope will be its effect on them? I, I don't know who read it. I certainly wasn't, it was, it certainly wasn't a partisan political book because I, I wrote the book at the time of deep disenchantment with the Labour Party. So it was not a partisan political book. I think it could appeal to people really across the political spectrum because don't forget the, 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 the Toryism says that there's no such thing as society. It's a very small brand of Toryism. It isn't, mm. it isn't, you know, there are plenty of, there are plenty of people on the soft right who do not agree with that. Who, who may who may not vote like I do, but who don't who, who do think that public the public realm is important. So I'm hoping it kind of re-energizes people a bit across all, you know, people who may have forgotten about the poetry and loveliness of uh, uh, Catelyn, uh, uh, Pete's Pete's wife, talks beautifully and lyrically in the book Catelyn Moran about you know the the loveliness of a public library, the and how sad she was to go back and see Wolverhampton Public Library reduced to a shell of its form. So I hope it just gets people to think we should be proud of these things. You know, I mean, in a, in a romantic way, but you, clapping for nurses only goes so far. But I mean, it would help if we started to start to look around us and say, hang on, we've been worshipping and venerating the wrong kinds of people and the wrong kinds of things for 40 odd years. And just before, just before Pete comes in, because I, I know Pete's book mm. is hugely about music and about the mm. powerful force music's been in his life and my life. It is not, I do not want the state, it is not a, a Maoist blue serge suit wearing book. I do not want the state, as I say early on, to make my curries or to make my pop music or I want, you know, I'm fully in favour of private individuals and private enterprise to a degree, but I don't think they should be running our schools, our hospitals, our reservoirs, our jails. Etc. 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 Yeah, no, that's very clear in the book, and it is joyful. I mean, we we discussed the sort of political framework of it, but it is a joyful celebration of those things which have surrounded us and been the literal built fabric around our lives. And I I was going to come to, so you've spared me the effort of coming to those musical references that you okay. naturally populate the book with. That you mentioned Richard Hawley and Jarvis Cocker from my hometown. Mm -hmm. You mentioned Catelyn. You mentioned Danny Boyle and Maxine Peake, and there's a feeling of a book populated with cultural figures who are very non-metropolitan, very vibrant, who are telling of an authentic experience. And I just wanted to, to end, before I move on to Pete's book, with is pop culture, which is the thing that the two of you have always written about, is pop culture the opposite of high culture, or is it a close relation? I, I, think, it's, I think it's a close relation. I think what Pete and I share is a love of popular music in all its forms. I don't think either of us, are, I think we both in our writing down the years have always railed against snobbery in it. Mm -hmm. And I think we love its commonality. I think we do love the commonality of it, that it, it is. it has been for many years. It, it's less homogenized now, so you don't get the whole nation falling in love with the Beatles or the Spice mm -hmm. Girls or whatever. I think it's more fragmented now, naturally, because of the nature of the beast. But I think we love its commonality and the fact that it has been something that we measure our, our, our lives in. Which, but of course, that is much more beautifully uh, and directly addressed in Pete. It does strike me. Thank you very much. It does strike me that, that that counterbalance between the individual and the community is what you're both looking at in your different ways. And that brings me to Pete's book. So just to introduce those of you who haven't heard of it or who haven't read it yet, Pete Perfides' book, Broken Greek, is a life story told through pop music, as it might well be, because Pete is, as we know, a rock critic and music writer. And one critic said that this book is drenched in sentiment, yet not in the least sentimental, and that describes it neatly. It's, again, funny, it's touching, it's horribly truthful about the embarrassments of any UK childhood. 
but it's also a story of two cultures meeting in one person. Pete Perfido's parents are Greek and Greek Cypriot, which makes him maybe a Greek Brummie. And like Stuart's book, he's telling his own story and simultaneously the larger story that he's a part of, a story that we can all identify with, even if we aren't quite so keen at him on Pexy's Midnight Runners. Um, so, Pete, I wonder if you could kick us off, please, by reading us a short piece from Broken Creek. Okay, just to uh, set things up, this is, uh, I, I sort of chose this because it echoes a lot of the sentiments of, um, of Stuart's book, and it's about the, the Jams uh, 1980 album, Sound Effect. You're about three paragraphs in, there is a takis, which is referred to, that is what, what my parents called, that's my real, my sort of real Greek name, as it were. So, anyway, here we go. Sound Effect was, in its way, as psychedelic a record as the Beatles' Sgt. Pepper, or the Moody Blues, The Days of Future Past. As with those albums, it ensured the surrounding streets would never be the same once you'd seen them as these songs saw them. In interviews, Paul Weller hymned the beauty of electricity pylons. Caught somewhere between William Blake and Colin McInnes, he set about making the suburbs sparkle. It was a record which sought to reassure you that, even though life could be tough, you controlled the magic. It was right there in Pretty Greed, a tune which oscillated at a perfect point of tension between the innocent release of spending your wages and the shit you have to go through in order to earn them. It also had a hook so catchy, I remember Jed, the teenage girl who lived next door, singing it a few days previously before telling me what the song was about. He's singing about pound notes, Tackies. I've got a pocket full of pretty greed. I've never heard them called that before. It's clever, isn't it, Tackies? Don't you think it's clever? It was clever, but it wasn't the cleverness that forged that afternoon into my memories. Aki and I frequently fought in the way that brothers do, but in the simple act of taping this record for him so he could listen to it in hospital, I missed him terribly. There was a space between the world as I saw it and the world as Aki saw it. Paul Weller's songs, caught between childhood innocence and the looming obligations of adulthood, occupied that space. But Monday, he set himself the challenge of, as he put it, writing a love song about the least romantic day of the week. In my head, a fairy tale ideal of love was swiftly supplanted by a new one. Monday ached like no other Paul Weller song had ached. It ached like your first 7am start in a strange workplace when all you want to do is be with your sweetheart. And perhaps most incredibly, Monday took all of this and made it aspirational. The character in the song was anything but a victim. His hardship was fuel for the promise of what the weekend had in store. A sunshine girl like you, it's worth going through. I will never be embarrassed about love again. Writing to John Peel in the late 60s, David Bowie said that out in the suburbs of Kent, he could be found dancing a furious boredom. The same could be said about sound effects most universally adored track. That's entertainment glistened like a wet cortina under a street lamp. A sonic simulation of eventless days in unloved conurbations. He knew because this was where he came from. Almost any other writer would have removed a line as mundane as watching the telly and thinking about your holidays. But these were the details that authenticated the entire thing, setting everything up for a final verse whose bittersweet intimacies would emotionally blindside me for decades to come. Two lovers kissing amongst the scream of midnight, two lovers missing the tranquility of solitude, getting a cab and travelling on buses, reading the graffiti about slashed seat affairs. That's entertainment. Slashed seat affairs. A perfect three-word encapsulation 
from the top deck trysts forged by fumbling teams on every night bus between town and terminus. Every moment of joy described on sound effect was a sweet steal from a world in which romance and wonder were busted currency. Thank you. And you go on to demonstrate in every word of the book that romance and wonder are not busted currencies. Um, because like Stuart's book, this is a love story with more than one lovey, as it were. It's, <laughs> it's about Birmingham, it's about music, it's about your family. And one of the focal points of it is growing up in Birmingham as the son of immigrant parents. Yeah. Have you found that that life story chimes with other readers who come from very different backgrounds at different times? Yeah, I have. And it's a huge source of relief that it did, because obviously you sort of hope that it will. And I thought, you know, there might be something to it with the people that maybe come from um, Indian families or Italian mm. families or, or families from Hong Kong and, and so on. Because... You know, there, there is a sort of tension, and I totally understand that tension. I totally see it from, you know, my parents' point of view, because, you know, this was the first time that, you know, huge amounts of people had come over to sort of Britain and not really sort of thinking through, because, it, you know, it was a relatively untried experiment, what kind of children they would be bringing up if they were bringing up those children in a different country to the one that they grew up in. So I think that as I... To be honest, when I was writing the book, I didn't think that that story was going to loom as large. I thought it was probably going to be about 75% a book about music. But I sort of realized, when I really tried to sort of, when I started to think about why the music I loved made me feel the way that I did, I kind of re I realized there was sort of a lot of guilt there. And, and as I sort of, exp you know, that guilt exists for a variety of reasons. First of all, well, the big reason was because I was I was sort of turning into something that was very different to my parents, and I knew what that meant, and I knew that, and I thought that might be a disappointing outcome for them. And also early on, I felt guilty because I decided not to talk to anyone for three years, almost any anyone between yes. between the ages of four and seven. So yeah, people people, but I think people do feel, you know, any young person will feel confused. You know, childhood is seventy percent confusion. I think you know uh, only seventy. Well, exactly. Thank you. Uh, because <laughs> ad adults have got no time. Adults suddenly in the 70s didn't have time to explain all this stuff. You know, you know, we needed, you know, certainly not before dishwashers were invented. Yeah. <laughs> and do you think that music filled in some of those gaps? I mean, it's clear from from listening to you speaking about the jam or when you write about Bowie or about uh, particularly Boy George and Karma Chameleon. And I remember too, that experience of seeing Boy George <laughs> and like everybody else's father in the whole of Britain, my father said, she's got a nice voice. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, we, we learned some of those things about gender or about politics or about shared frustration, perhaps through music. Was that part of it that, that they were articulating what you literally literally couldn't articulate in your case yeah it was a sort of a proxy it was a proxy space in which you know all this stuff could be decanted and you know the the the, the sort of intense emotions you were feeling about certain songs were you know partly predicated on things that you were watching happening around you i mean i, th I really do think that's the reason why we love a lot of the songs well so it's clear that in in very deep and meaningful ways music populates and furnishes life but at the same time you tell us that little Jimmy Osmond was a threat to you, and I'm interested to know why that was. He was a threat to me. You know, he he was on the television an awful lot, and you know, he was this very very obliging, sunny, all singing, dancing, outgoing, uh, sort of best case scenario. What it was to be a to be a, a child, at least it, that's how he came across to me. And by this time, I'd stopped speaking to everyone apart from my parents, and sometimes the 
teacher, you know, there were no children in, in earshot. And the, and the reasons for that were sort of partly, I think, to do with the fact that we, we, we'd been, we were preparing to move to Cyprus and then the, um, the, the partition of the island happened and it was too dangerous a place to go back to. My dad, my dad couldn't back to his home village, go back to his home village. So it's very discombobulated and I was turning into something very quickly that um, I, I, I knew my parents didn't want me to turn into. And, um, and so Jimmy, so I'd hide behind the sofa every time Jimmy Osmond came on the television. And, and, and it would be like, deeply upset, you know, uncontrollable crying. And, um, he, you know, he, he was like a bogeyman to me. <laughs> the thing is, you don't have the words at that age to really explain what it, what it is that you're feeling. But if you can remember the emotion, then you certainly do have the words sort of later on in life. There were a lot of situations like that where I could I could very easily go back and sort of put words to something that I would have struggled to put words to at the time. Yes, and I'm struck by how how many people will recognise that experience that music articulates emotions. For for me, the equivalent was poetry. I think that poetry expressed uh, large emotions in a way that I couldn't possibly articulate in in my own speech. And music, of course, goes further and speaks straight to the gut, doesn't it, in many ways. Um, you actually say, do you sometimes feel like the music you're hearing is explaining your life to you? And I think that makes that will make perfect sense to a lot of readers, including perhaps Stuart McConing. Is that does that phrase make sense to you, Stuart, that the music you're hearing is explaining your life to you? I think I think at various pivotal points. I mean, sometimes I think you like music because you don't know what it means. I like a lot of music that I that I simply find I don't know what it means. You know what I mean? I don't know what it's saying to me. The sheer mystery and strangeness of it gets me. But I think, I mean, a case in point would be, and this is it's a this is a cliche. I'm not a this is not a particularly original thought. But even even as my, in my late teens, the Smiths for the mm. first time in my life, I remember. And I think this was shared by a generation of of people everywhere, particularly in the north, that suddenly you went. Oh my God, this is, you know, that he's singing about my life. He's singing about being on the dole in Wigan. He's singing, mm. he's making romantic all the things that we have been told are terrible about our towns and our lives. And I think that's why they instantly uh, struck a chord with so many people. It was the prosaic and the mundane and that that so many people like Joe Jackson were doing the same thing. Um, yeah. You know, don't you know that it's different for girls was something that that chimed with me. But yes, the, uh, you have a broken Greek playlist on Spotify as well. Can you, if you tell us some of the things that are on that, that may well give us a sense of the, the time frame that we're talking about and what the soundtrack was for the, the younger Perfidos. It starts with things like Sugar Baby Love by the Rebets and, and, you know, and Waterloo by ABBA. You know, ABBA is sort of the Greek chorus really in a way for the whole, for the whole story because, you know, I would sort of, uh, I would, I would see aspects of, my, my parents such a situation in a and sort of um re revealed back to me in in abba lyrics and there just seemed to be an uncanny kind of parallel uh certainly certainly in my own mind maybe not in real life to what was happening between my my parents and uh abba but yeah the thing about the, the playlist i really it, i'm so happy you know that you know it's great that the book is out in 2020 because you know the technology allows us to do this but you know yes. i like the idea of people kind of ping-ponging between the book and the playlist and sort of reminding themselves of certain songs or even hearing them for the first time. And the thing about the playlist, it's not like the book, it's not, it, it, you know, there's about 600 songs on it or something, you know, colossal like that. And, um, you know, a lot of them are, are not very good, <laughs> but they are... <laughs> 
or, or at least to, to to a lot of people. I mean, I I've got a, a, a lot of affection for for most of them, but um, I don't really sit around listening to the Baron Knights these days. But, you know, <laughs> but the the thing is, every song mentioned in the book is is, is on the playlist, and so um, so that's it's just to give you to allow you to, if you wanted to immerse yourself further in the book as you're reading it, because it's hard enough to explain the concept of the Baron Knights. You know, anyway. Yeah, I, I I remember the Baron Knights perhaps too vividly, and um, it strikes me that you're doing the same as Stuart is doing in that to <laughs> to explain my my mistress my mistress eyes are nothing like the sun. That's, you know, you're yeah. you're not just saying I love the welfare state, I love Birmingham, I love pop music, but in order to acknowledge that love, you have to say, but it does have a wart on its nose. You know, it does have these features that aren't all that great, and I know about that too, but I love it in spite of that. And that the the sort of passing musical fads or the comic music things are just as much a part of our wallpaper as yeah. as the the greats but yeah. i noticed that you also speak unapologetically about listening to a beatles album as great art and that pop music is entitled to that claim it's not a guilty pleasure for you it's a common culture is that right absolutely i mean i do understand why why um people have felt the need to invent guilty pleasures because you know stuart and i uh, a music journalist and you know we you know we appear to have acquired a, a, a modest amount of status so that when we say we like something uncool we're probably not going to get lynched but yeah. you know in, in certain situations it, you know and it's, if, if someone, someone might be shy or you know not very confident then i can see why someone might might sort of you know so you know if they're talking about a song by i don't know barbara dixon as i, as I do at some point mm -hmm. in the book they might say, well, Elkie I could... Brooks, you mentioned as well. Elkie Brooks, yeah. Someone might say, well, Pearl's a singer by Elkie Brooks. That's a bit of a guilty pleasure for me. And then there are people that come along and say, well, I don't believe there's any such thing as guilty pleasures. You just like what you like and, you know, you shouldn't really be sorry about it. But I, th I sort of think that these things, if someone came went came went to the trouble of thinking of the term guilty pleasure, so it has to be doing some useful lifting somewhere. It has to ex it has to exist for a reason. Otherwise, it just wouldn't the term would have been, would have been caught on. And I think guilty pleasures are a kind of quarantine area um, for for low art that we are that is in the process of reappraising. And um, and if enough people enjoy guiltily or otherwise then it gets then it gets moved out of this quarantine area into an area where people can just say oh it's good perhaps part of what you've both done as 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 music commentators perhaps what both of you have done is give people permission to like either the arcane peculiar music which is not in the mainstream or the music which is super super mainstream and which people were quietly liking all along but not really daring to say so until one of you says no really that's fine so i i certainly found in both of your books permission to to acknowledge the things that i i loved about the welfare state indeed or about pop music of the 1970s you know for me it was David Dundas, blue je I put on my blue jeans, which was yeah. just a soundtrack to where I was living as a kid at the time. And, you know, and for me, oh, now you see, it's all right for me yeah, to right. like that now because you've said that's OK. But as it as it is, it's a part of my soundtrack that it's a part of what you've done in your books to to make us own and reclaim those parts of our lives which we either took for granted or which we kind of we didn't we didn't know if it was all right to feel that strongly about it. And that's a great part of what writing can do, what, what 
any book can do in making the reader acknowledge, yeah, I feel like that too. The spirit of generosity that you apply to music in that way, you also apply to your mum and dad and to the to their experience in a way which I haven't often read before, that, of course, your mum and dad are big characters in your childhood and big characters in every page of the book. But there's a very generous understanding of, for instance, the experience of your mum and how she might have felt uh, belittled by the experience of putting flour on fish and how hard she worked to make school jumpers to order when the family needed more cash. And that acknowledgement of their experience. Yeah. I wondered if the book has changed or reframed your relationship with them at all. I think they didn't know what form the book was going to take. And um, and there was no point in me really explaining to them because I, I, I felt like I was I was kind of almost, I would be scaring them if I explained to them what I was sort of trying to do with the book. And uh, you can't really give people the choice in that way over what you choose to write about or not write about. You just have to sort of take that leap and hope that they understand that you know that, that they feel you contextualize your experience fairly. I think what 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 I wanted, what I was very careful to try and do was to convey that this was this. They were very they were very sort of they're quite typical couple of their generation um, culture, and a lot of kind of slightly idealized romantic notions about that we as people in modern relationships have of what it is to be a, a couple were not necessarily the norm then, you know, and I think certainly amongst, you know, the working classes um, in, in previous generations, you didn't marry someone expecting to be madly in love with them 30 years down the line. So this harsh view that we take of sort of sitcoms from the 60s and 70s, which, you know, rightly so in some ways, but, you know, the kind of the, the depiction of of a, of a man and a woman kind of grinding their way through their marital duty and you know the woman's a bit of a battle axe and the guy the blokes that put down the pub and all of that you know the, those you know marriage i think the, the shadow of duty loomed larger over the, the definition of a marriage which is why you know i, I wanted to reference fiddler on the roof um mm. in in the book because i think that's a, that was that was that, that was more what it was like sort of back then and so and it was a less enlightened time, so and, and work was harder. So you know, there 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 are things like you know, there's a scene where my dad visits my mum in the hospital. She's just had an operation, and I I wanted to, and you know, I remember at the time thinking that you know he behaved a bit in, sort of insensitively towards her. But looking back now, I can sort of see that he was a man who couldn't really express his emotions very well, mm. and he was very very scared, and he didn't know how to express those things to a woman who was lying in a hospital bed you know having just had major major surgery and so um to answer your question um they've been they've actually been fantastic about it i was quite sort of frightened as to what their reaction might be but they've come to understand my my mum got it straight away and i think it took my dad a bit longer but i think he Mm. he sort of understands was there any sense, Pete, I wonder, was there any sense at all when you were writing, tell me to my own business if you like, but was there any sense, Pete, when you were writing it in which if you, if you almost, even if even if they didn't read it, but in some way it was you trying to explain yourself to them? Uh, yeah, I, I think I felt that, um, I think I felt that I had to just sort of put it out there and, yeah. and wor- worry about it later because I certainly wasn't able to explain myself to them at the time and and of course, if I had that, when you're a child, you're a, you're an unfinished story. We don't know what the outcome of that story is going to be, and you know. So when, especially with Greek parents, and I think this is the the, the case with a lot of you know 
people who have children in a country other than their own. You know, you lay down a lot of kind of rules that you think will, you, that you're laying down really because you can't really control what kind of an adult you're going to mm. bring up. So, oh, you know, only marry someone of your own nationality. Don't get into that scene. Don't move to that city. You only do this kind of job. But of course, you're an unfinished story. And so if I try to answer your question, Stuart, which is a great question, by the way, I think if um, if I tried to explain that to them at the time, then they would still be worried because they would still felt a sense of peril as to what yeah. the outcome of my story was going to be. Yeah. But I can do that now because I'm, 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 you know, I'm 51 now. And, you know, hopefully nothing... <laughs> Something really bad was going to happen to me. You know, when I moved to, when I finished my degree, I, I moved to London. I just got b- been offered a couple of small reviews at Melody Maker. And so I moved to London straight away. My parents were expecting me to move back to Birmingham to maybe like, you know, they may take over the chip shop or maybe, yeah. you know, I could sort of, you know, train to become an accountant or something. And my mum, they kind of, I, I got a kind of bed seat. I, I moved into a bedsit in Stockwell which was really really grotty and they very kindly offered to kind of move my stuff down and uh and my mum basically had a panic attack when she saw it and she yeah. just couldn't stop crying she just because I was opposite I was opposite a slightly less lovely example of the brutalist states you describe in your book right. Right. <laughs> that was like the view from my front of it and um <laughs> so I moved my stuff in. there was like barely any room in my in my room for anything more than a bed and a chest of drawers and a record player. And I, anyway, they sort of made their way home. And uh, I called my mum, you know, about three hours later to make sure they got back okay. And she's still crying. Oh. <laughs> she literally hadn't stopped. She hadn't stopped. She hadn't stopped crying all the way from Stockwell to Birmingham. Oh, and uh, it's it's unbearable. And and actually, the passage that you speak of, Pete, in your book, where uh, your mum is in hospital and your dad basically says well think about me you know there's no one in the fish shop to to do the frying and so on mm. you you manage to to strike a perfect balance there between the immense shock of that insensitivity as it must have hit you as a kid and at the, exactly the same time the understanding of him now as a grown man looking mm. at how how he was actually deflecting and paraphrasing what he was actually feeling and so there's that balance between the power of the moment and and the sort of reframing of it as a as a situation that you now understand better so i want to to draw us peacefully to a close like the life of george the sixth um, <laughs> but um, but i wanted to think also about what the the two books have in common and what they say about unity and division in particular because i do see them both as sitting in this this slew of fantastic books now which are coming out telling corners of social history or broader parts of social history that we haven't examined closely enough like why i'm no longer speaking to white people about race or common people or natives and they seem to me both to sit as brilliant stories full of laughter and joy but also as telling that larger story through an individual prison. They're, they're super powerful for doing that. And I wanted to ask you a final question, really, which is, are we becoming more divided nowadays, as is commonly said? And if so, what can unite us? What can we do to, to bring ourselves together a little more? The, the, the current crisis, I mean, if you remember, it's interesting charting the our reactions to it. At the beginning, there was this feeling of we are going to emerge from this a better 
and a, you know a, a better nation i i was kind of slightly swept along by that thinking well i hope in future we start to realize who the real good guys are and who the bad guys are and we realize that it is underpaid nurses and cleaners and people and not sort of the sort of people we put on dragon's den and the apprentice and and i but I, clearly that's not panning out quite it's not panning out quite like that it's become much more nuanced i think but and i do i do hope there'll be a genuine social change after this or changing attitudes but it's not quite been the um it's not quite been the, as, as straightforward as it seemed, I don't think. Because um, we've realised that after initially me thinking, oh, my God, you know, the Conservatives have become one nation party again and they're paying out money to people and all this. And now, of course, they're showing themselves again in probably the truer colours. But um, it's, I do think, but I do think there might be some kind of, of change. I, I don't know. It's difficult. It's difficult, to, it's difficult to say. I think my... I think what both of our books have in common in their different ways, if that makes sense, is that I think we are not 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 celebrating the ordinary, but celebrating the overlooked in a way that we've become very keen on the individual as super special. Uh, I think we've been very keen on this idea that there is, you know, that I am I am utterly unique and there's no one like me. And I, my, maybe my book more than Pete's, but I think Pete's has an as well. I think we're saying, no, you know what? We've actually all got quite a lot in common that I realised, yeah. you know, that reading Pete's book that, you know, my experience on a council estate in Wigan is different from Pete's experience in Brum and, and, two, and slightly years apart. But so much of it struck a chord with me about just about the, 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 the little things that affect us all, the little family dramas that affect us all, the, the you know, friendships and love affairs and music and stuff like that. And I think that we, I, I just hope we start to think that the things, you know, we have more in common than we have apart, really. And that's, uh, we've, been, we've stressed, uh, understandably, we've spent a lot of time in the last few months thinking about our differences. But I think about our similarities is quite, it's quite a nice thing to do as well, I think. Yeah, I think, you know, I, th I think just to echo Stuart's point, I think, uh, what, what, you know, one, one of the great things about Stuart's book is it's um, the characters that populate it. And, and, and um, you know, I was reminded, you know, there are some characters that sort of populate my book as well, which, which sort of reminded me of characters in his book especially especially under Stuart you know, I grew up in Birmingham Stuart spends an awful lot of time yeah. in Birmingham and um, and you know there's a certain kind of when Stuart's talking about a, a kind of tenor a kind of sort of grain of, 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 of the British working class character that existed in the per, in the post-war year I got a real pang of nostalgia for, for a mm. certain you know for a lot of um, a lot of the adults that surrounded me a lot of my teachers a certain kind of very unshowy, unsoppy warmth yeah. that, um, that 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 existed in working class life and was absolutely ubiquitous. It was absolutely widespread. It was just there was a base level of decency that you didn't sort of show show off about. It was just sort of soaked into you, partly as a result of maybe what had happened not only during the war but in the years after the war mm -hmm. and the and the and the values that were. Um, reflected in the uh, in the creation of the welfare state and you just saw that in people and in like you know and libraries were a part of that and self-improvement there was an ethos of self-improvement that was also a part of it and I, I, I really hope that we can find a way to sort of build that into the sort of infrastructure of political life I, I don't know how that can happen I'm not sure there's much of a will for it to happen at a political level at the moment but God, if we lose that, we lose so much. I think what connects both of your books, perhaps, is the single word I've just jotted down, which is togetherness. Mm -hmm. That sense that um, collectively, 
we can value and honour one another. And that, that comes across very clearly in both of your books with the way that you acknowledge and talk about all the different people who come across your path. Uh, no matter how men, how minor a role they play, they're all honoured, uh, sometimes with a joke, sometimes with a, a rather touching story. But they're, they are fantastic books. They truly are. You can you. get both of Thank these you. books, by the way, as audio books read. I think, Pete, is your audio book, have you read that yourself? Yes. Yes, I did. Yes. And no, I, know actually, that I read Pete. I read Pete's and Pete read mine. You read Pete's and Pete read mine. Well, that that makes my experience of listening to you for four hours on my allotment last week very disconcerting. Um, it, it, you you kept me company as I planted the potatoes. You'd have really got the thin thin end of the wedge, Stuart, if you'd had to read mine. I was that was my, I think I think it's eighteen hours long in total. Oh my God! Yeah, it will be. Yours is a hell of a lot longer than mine, people. Bloody hell! They are both fantastic books. They are both completely characterised by a strong sense of what is decent and oh, fair, the importance so of simple pleasures and the company of people who who share your experience of life. And they're both, in their own way, love stories. They really are. And it's been it's been a very great pleasure to read them both and to talk to you about them both. So thank you very much uh, to Birmingham Literature Festival for having us and to Stuart McConey and to Pete Perfides for talking about your books. Thank you, Joe. Thanks, Pete. I hope I see both of you in the flesh yeah. before too long. That'd be really nice. Thank you. Thank Take you. Take care. Speak soon. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Birmingham Lit Fest Presents podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd love for you to tell us about it. Leave us a review and a rating. Find us on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook at Beham Lit Fest. And take a look at the rest of this year's digital programme on our website at www.birminghamliteraturefestival.org. You can download our latest podcast episodes every Thursday from all the places you would normally get your podcasts. Until then, happy reading. The Birmingham Lit Fest Presents podcast is curated by Chantal Edwards and produced by 11C and Birmingham Podcast Studios for Writing West Wigan.